Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we discuss local journalism and the important role it continues to play in the health of our democracy, as well as holding powerful organizations, companies, and government officials to account. We also explore the challenges local journalism faces and how audiences can support robust local news in their communities. My guest is Elahe Izadi, media reporter for The Washington Post. Why are you focusing on local news? Why is it important? And why should we care about strong local news? I think oftentimes in media coverage, when news organizations cover the media industry, there's a lot of focus on the sort of big name players, the national brands, um, which are important and very influential. But I think most people, they interact with journalism on a local level, and there's just so much happening in that space, there's a huge news story happening when it comes to local news itself, and it really gets at the heart of a functioning democracy. Um, and so I'm drawn to those stories for, for that reason, and also because I love talking with quote-unquote real people, <laughs> <laughs> and I find that speaking with local journalists yes. kind of is the closest I can get to on this beat <laughs> of speaking with real people because these are people who, you know, they're not making huge, like, six-figure cable news salaries or working for giant news organizations per se. They also live in the communities that they cover, so they are not just swooping in and covering a big event. They have to face the people they cover all the time and be accountable to the communities they cover. So I, I just enjoy speaking with people who are so embedded and connected to their communities because it's almost like a reflection of the communities themselves. I think that's something that we maybe societally have lost sight of a bit, that journalists are actually people who live in the communities that they cover. And why do you think there's that disconnect? And how are you trying to bring that to light for the wider community. It became more pronounced during the Trump administration, but even prior to that, there's long been this sort of negative talk, the media, quote unquote, being the boogeyman and people on all sides of the political spectrum, quite frankly, um, having a lot of negative things to say, blaming the media. And that trickles down to even local journalists. Local journalists have, have said that they've felt the impact of this sort of rhetoric on even them and their jobs. And I always find it fascinating when I do write a story that illuminates the realities of life for local journalists, that they aren't these people making huge amounts of money and that they largely do the work that they do because they really care, that regular citizens, the public, don't really realize that. When they do realize it, it moves them in a different way. And even on a personal level, when I get reader email that isn't so kind, mm -hmm. I try to respond to people um, so that they see I'm a human being yeah. and that I'm not an anonymous robot, um, that I'm a human being. And I, I read what they wrote. And I always say thank you for taking the time to read um, because, you know, people's time is valuable. And even if they're going to write me a very nasty email, um, I appreciate that they've read the work. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of response do you get when you do that? Sometimes radio silence, but sometimes people have responded apologizing for their initial tone, um, didn't realize that I was a person on the other end, and uh, kind of being embarrassed a little bit by their tone. Now, I should also note I'm a woman. I'm a mm -hmm. person of color. I have a name that might set off some alarm signals for certain people that, you know, I get some hateful emails, too. Um, 
But even with those, you know, some I'm not going to respond back to. But but I try to just show that I, I'm a human and that even though we're all talking to each other over the internet, which sort of creates this feeling of anonymity, that we are all still human beings and people. Um, and so just trying to even elevate the discourse a little bit in that space and and you know when you're when you're writing to people, just realize like what you write might be published somewhere. Like if I'm writing to someone, so I always think like, how would I feel if this was publicized? <laughs> My response to this person. I think you're doing a great service also for local journalists by elevating their stories and talking about the industry. You you brought up a really important point in your initial answer about the idea that journalism or strong local journalism is is critical to a healthy democracy or a healthy functioning society. I think more and more people are getting it, but it can sound hyperbolic. Why do you say that? Well, studies have shown that people who live in places where there's little to no local news coverage are less likely to vote in local elections, or when they do vote, it's it's much more hyper-partisan environment. Um, and there have also been studies that have shown that people who regularly vote in local elections and have really strong community attachments, they're active in their community, that sort of habit is also strongly linked to, to news habits. Um, so we know that data, right? We know what happens in places where there isn't strong local journalism. We know the types of people who are voting and their news habits. But I also think about it in the sense of, you know, every four years, there's a presidential election that gets a lot of attention. But how many people are paying attention to their local city council races, their school board races, their even their governor's races, um, their local congressional races? But when we're talking about local like city councils and school boards and planning commissions, those are the bodies that their decisions have a much more immediate impact on people's lives. If people aren't paying attention to it and don't know what's going on there, then they're not as engaged. So I think of like local news as sort of the reflection. Well, if the fourth estate is basically non-existent on a local level, what does that mean for the elected officials and the governing bodies that are just focused on local issues? That might mean that there's local corruption. That might mean that there are decisions being made that have profound consequences on people's lives. And not only do they not know about it, that's like perhaps the most immediate thing, right? If there's no local reporter who's covering this, you might just not find out about it until it's quote unquote too late, if at all. But there's also this other dynamic of the watchdog function that journalists play. So time and time again, when I speak with people in communities about why it matters that their newspaper is suffering, disappearing, they tell me about how when the city council meets and they know the local reporter is sitting there, they behave. That they know that their words can be printed in next week's edition and next day's edition, that they're going to be held accountable. So it's almost like I wonder what corruption is not happening precisely because these people have been in those meetings and paying attention. And I shudder to think about what corruption is happening that we don't know about because those people have disappeared. Yeah. Not only has local news disappeared, but in that void, we have players creating information that mimics news in its look and feel, and yet has different agendas, right. more spin, and it's not done by, by a fourth estate 
you know, someone who's trying to cover the community. It's done by someone who has an agenda. There are these so-called pink slime sites, and we, we've seen the proliferation of them over the past several years. Perhaps the most extreme example of it um, is it this national network of 1,300 sites run by Metric Media. They have the look and feel of local news sites with innocuous sounding names um, like Lansing Sun. And, and, you know, when you log onto their homepage, it looks like any other local news site. Um, but there was a New York Times investigation that reported that a lot of their stories were essentially, you know, funded by PR firms and conservative political groups in support of Republican candidates. But we've seen this across the country in other iterations as well. And, you know, the Internet has made publishing um, and we can talk about the Internet's <laughs> vast impact, but it's essentially anyone can sort of start a site. And a lot of studies have shown that, you know, I talked about before how um, people have a negative connotation when we talk about the media. However, when you ask them about their local media, trust is really high. And so we already have these brands established that trust is really high, much higher in local news. Um, and then if you have these other entities cropping up with a local news bent and presentation, it might be capitalizing on that pre-existing sort of inclination to trust a local news outlet. I would love to talk about sort of where local journalism is right now, um, where you see local journalism and why we're here. In a word, the state of local newspapers, which is a lot of what I focus on, is it's not great. Um, the nation's newspapers since 2008, have shed half of their workforce. And then more than a quarter of those newspapers have just closed altogether during that time. Um, and this is like before the pandemic, which accelerated those closures. And then of those newspapers that still remain, there are many that are now almost like considered ghost newspapers, sort of shells of their former selves because their staffing and their resources has been so decimated that they are just barely able to cover the happenings of their community, let alone do the sort of robust reporting that people have perhaps relied on before. And then we also have this other trend of corporate consolidation. We've seen a lot of private equity firms, um, venture capitalists getting into the local news game. One of them is called Alden Global Capital. They're now the second largest newspaper owner in the country. Um, and the journalists who work for their newspapers have been very vocal in what they call a vulture capital fund, that they believe that this firm has no real interest in preserving and investing in journalism. It does have a track record of squeezing what they own financially to turn higher than average profit margins. There was a University of North Carolina study that found that layoffs and buyouts and that sort of thing happen at a much higher rate. Attrition happens at a higher rate than the average for local newspapers. And it should be noted that, you know, this past year, um, Alden made a move to acquire and it was successful in doing so Tribune Publishing, which itself had a troubled financial history. Um, if we remember the ill-fated trunk. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it's not that all these companies have been so well run, um, but essentially in the lead up to its um, eventual purchase of Tribune, which includes Chicago Tribune, New York Daily News, the Baltimore Sun, the Hartford Current, Morning Call, the Capital Gazette, um, in Annapolis, the site of a mass shooting in 2018, um, 
in the lead up to to this purchase, the journalists at these newspapers themselves were organizing community meetings with stakeholders and trying to get people in the community on board to inform them and get them to care about what might be happening to their local newspapers. And essentially, they were trying to find local, well-heeled buyers to buy their newspapers. And they were almost successful. Um, They were not. Uh, One individual in particular in Baltimore, he had wanted to buy the Baltimore Sun and then tried to, you know, make a bid for Olive Tribune. He was not successful, but he's starting his own nonprofit. And already we have some really big names from the Baltimore Sun joining his nonprofit news organization that is focusing on Baltimore. That's awesome. You know, we had a few examples of that here in the Bay Area where I live in California, uh, down in Half Moon Bay, a group of local investors uh, bought the paper and up in Santa Rosa, which is north of San Francisco, investors uh, did the same. And so that's been wonderful, but that's not always possible as you as you illuminate. I also wanted to say about hedge funds and, and about this buy-up is that I think what we don't always recognize is what happens there, is that profits made are siphoned out of the community rather than reinvested in the paper in this scenario. And that legacy buildings are sold and then it becomes sort of this well if I subscribe the money's not going to stay in the community but I want to support the paper so what do I do um, so what what advice do you have for people in communities who are trying to support their local journalism that's a really great question perhaps the most anyone can do is to subscribe but also if you find that the coverage has diminished, if there are features that your paper used to have that you want, to be vocal about it, to let the editor know, to let the company know what it is you value and why you pay, even if you feel like it's diminished coverage. Um, also to honestly like reach out to local journalists if you do appreciate their coverage and let them know that you appreciate it because it can be kind of a thankless job. Um, and you know, there's other forms of of news coverage as well locally. There's public media, which does not have a paywall, meaning that it's more accessible to people who can't afford to pay. So I would say if you can pay to consider paying, if you pay for, you know, a Netflix subscription, like why not pay for your news as well? So I would say that those things are still important. And then also see if there are new sort of upstarts, digital outfits in your community that are nonprofits that have a civic um, mission. Um, and and also like another point to just make and highlight is sometimes when we get into this conversation of the decimation of local newspapers, it can be very nostalgic as if these papers have always been amazing and have done a great job of covering communities. And I think especially since 2020, when this bigger conversation about race has become more mainstream, it's an opportunity to recognize that it hasn't always been great. And in fact, in many cases, it, they perpetuated a lot of these problems. So when I think of this moment of disruption, it's not so much let's get back to how things were before, but provides an opportunity to examine how these papers maybe always fell short of um, covering certain communities and and what they can do better to, to move ahead and grow their audiences even. I really appreciate you saying that because there are people and organizations trying to come up with new models to cover local communities, to cover the news, to inform. And if it's not your local legacy paper, you know, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're discussing the important role of local journalism with Washington Post media reporter Elahe Izadi. I want to commend the Kansas City Star for what it did a couple of years ago. Uh, it went back and looked at its coverage over the decades and 
owned up to its role in dividing the community over race and for not covering its uh, its black community well at all. And, and that this, as painful as it is and as horrible as it is, or it seems, could be an opportunity to really do things better. Yeah, and looking at that opportunity as something that, how can it be more inclusive of, of different kinds of people who aren't um, journalists and haven't been able to break into the industry in the past 15, 20 years. Initially, it was kind of a, you know, a more blue collar working class vocation. And the other element of why this matters for the whole media ecosystem is that, you know, like when I was coming up, the path for a journalist was if you wanted to be a newspaper reporter, a print reporter, you start in local newspapers. So I was a community newspaper reporter for several years. And that was sort of my training ground in a way. Um, and I learned a lot of very valuable lessons about what it meant to cover a community that you had to face every day. And what does it mean to cover a city budget, a police budget, a school, to write a feature on someone, all of these these things. And that these are the reporters who then sort of move on to the, the quote unquote bigger, <laughs> bigger beats, if you want to call it that, like covering the White House, covering the Justice Department. This is sort of the ecosystem. Now, if those training grounds aren't there, what kind of reporters are being produced? Not to, you know, throw any shade on anyone who no, didn't no, follow true. my path. <laughs> um, but I have found it to be so helpful in, in what I do. And I carry all of those stories with me. And also because these jobs, especially in the past 10, 15 years, 20 years, have been so low paying, it makes you wonder what kinds of people are able to afford to have these jobs. People who come from marginalized backgrounds, who are carrying a lot of debt, um, these are really hard financial choices um, to make. And so, you know, there are people who still make it in the industry despite having come from such circumstances. But if we look on a bigger scale, then who are the people who are able to even be journalists? They it tends to be people who come from more socioeconomically privileged backgrounds, and that shapes the coverage, whether we like it or not. And so if we are thinking about how to move forward, um, the Kansas City Star is a great example of looking backward. But now it's like a lot of the conversations I'm following in newsrooms among journalists is, okay, how can we not just like attract a diverse staff, like racially or socioeconomically, but how can we retain this staff? Um, these are conversations that every news organization is grappling with right now. Um, no one has it figured out. Right. And this is absolutely not to throw shade. I love NPR, but there have been some high profile departures at NPR recently. And NPR is a place where they've got a diversity officer in, in Keith Woods. They're trying to create this source database that's that's diverse. They're thinking about this already. And yet still this conversation is being had about that organization. You know, because local news coverage informs you know, you talked about your experiences, but also that network, those connections you can bring with you so you can reconnect with local communities where someone who just starts at the national level may not have the, the local network, may not be able to cover a local community in the same way or as well or as deeply as someone who's right there. If we really think about any big national news story, aside from maybe something happening in the halls of the U.S. Capitol or the White House, they are all essentially local news stories. If we think about what happened in Texas, for instance, um, if we think about any of these uh, police shootings caught on camera, they become national stories, but they are also essentially local news stories. If we look at, for instance, in Minneapolis, George Floyd, 
the Star Tribune's role. The Star Tribune is a really robust local newspaper, and they were really on top of that story from from jump. Um, and I wonder what would have happened in another community. But if we look at Ahmad Arbery, that shooting, and there is a newspaper there, and there was one reporter who sort of stuck with it and found it very odd that this shooting happened, that someone was killed, and we don't even know who it is. And I wonder what would have happened if he wasn't really on top of it, in addition to, obviously, the family's efforts to to make it known what happened. All of these stories that have become really big stories, they have required local journalists to be there because they know the intricacies. They know the community. They know what's going on with the police department, who was the prosecuting attorney, all of these things. Um, And so it's really hard if you are sitting in a newsroom in New York City or Washington, D.C., and to just immediately know all all of these things. Um, And so there's a lot of value in having people who not just live there locally but have that institutional knowledge of how things work. Um, But that's not to say that National news reporters can't come to communities and and do really good reporting. The New York Times did a really important story in the Ahmad Arbery killing from the beginning as well that brought a lot of national attention to it. But I do see this sort of ecosystem like national news outlets day to day often do rely on local outlets. They aggregate stories and they don't even know about these stories unless often a local news outlet has covered it first. Tangentially or alongside this is this conversation about bias about objectivity and and there is the traditional idea that somehow took hold in the US that objectivity is the thing even though that doesn't necessarily jibe with the fourth estate or you know afflicting the comfortable comforting the afflicted all the things we think of when we talk about journalism talk a little bit about how you as a working journalist navigate that piece of things in your work yeah you know when i'm doing my work what i really strive for is to be fair and as much as possible to be aware of any biases I might be bringing to the subject Um, and to also interview people and talk to people and ask my questions and and be open to what they're sharing. Um, I really strive as much as I can (laughs) to be fair. And I also recognize that every story I write um, isn't going to be able to tell the entirety of the full, full story. But I think about like this idea of truth seeking, like the analogy I use in my head as I'm doing my job is, okay, let's say there's this big elephant and I'm an ant. And then there's a bird in the tree and there's, you know, a mouse and there's like a gazelle. And if we're all looking at this elephant from our perspectives, we're all seeing a piece of it. And we're all like, it's all true. Like what we see is true and real. It is the elephant. But if you were to just rely on my perspective as the little ant, as the entirety of the truth, then you're going to miss out on a lot. But it's my responsibility to bring my contribution to it. So when I approach my work, oftentimes I'm I'm looking for stories that maybe aren't getting attention or covered or like what's a contribution to the conversation. Like early on in the pandemic, I was really struck by how there was this talk of this virus waging a war. And if we think about in war reporting, the role of journalists is on the front lines to bring us those images and the impact. But the front lines for the pandemic was inside of hospitals and we're not getting those images. So it has this huge disconnect. So I wanted to explore that idea as one contribution to this conversation around the pandemic. Um, So yeah, I try to be fair and I try and think about what's missing from the conversation and how can I make this contribution. Um, And, you know, the bottom line is like, 
talking to people and reporting what's accurate. Right. <laughs> it's what I strive for. Good. Thank you. That's great. That's what we need. Yeah. You know, you brought up earlier the idea of the internet and how it's affected uh, information sharing for better and worse. Um, and there is a gatekeeping role that a news outlet does have. And it's meant to, as you say, inform, you know, bring the accurate information to the fore, pull perspectives together, help us navigate our worlds, right? And then you have the internet where there may be a lack of gatekeepers, and that can be great in some ways because you can get information out there that may have been blocked before, but also information that may not be as accurate or as high quality as we need to have a healthy democracy. Within media circles, there's a lamentation of, oh, you know, Wild West Internet, anyone can put anything. We need gatekeepers. We need editors. We need journalists. We need professionals involved to tell us what's happening and the news um, and bring that level. We can't just let everyone say whatever they want. Um, but I do think there is an element of like, I wonder, for instance, if the protests in Ferguson, Missouri and the shooting of Michael Brown, whether that would have gotten the attention it did get um, had it not been for social media. And we've seen this time and time again, where um, people who have been traditionally marginalized from making decisions around news coverage have gotten a lot of attention two stories and opened up larger conversations because they had another platform. Now, I think the element that perhaps is like more proactive or like, what do we do, though? Because as you like, we're in a pandemic and there's a lot of misinformation and there's a disinformation out there is the element of media literacy. How can the public be more educated so that when they are consuming media, they understand whether something is true or not? Like how to know whether something is real or fake, which is something that professional journalists do for a living. Like we see all sorts of things and we try to get to the bottom of it and see whether this is valid or not. And so I think on a mass level, like how people can become more media literate to understand the information that they're getting um, so that they can make those decisions and understand um, what's going on. I think the other thing that journalists would benefit from is questioning our baked-in assumptions as to what is newsworthy and why. To just ask, why is this newsworthy? Or the word that I often think is like a red flag is when we're talking about stories and we being journalists and we use the word we. Like we as a country or we as a society or we are dealing with this. Everyone's stuck at home during the pandemic. We are all, ex you know, and just to drill in, be a more precise, like who is the we? So that we understand perhaps some of the biases we're walking into. And also it's okay to write about the experiences of those people, but just know who you're writing about and know that it's not representative of everyone. If I'm saying it, let me just be precise about it. Um, it doesn't mean I can't write it. Let me just understand and know that not everyone is this person. Oh, I appreciate that point so much. And, and also that point you made about media literacy. Can journalists contribute to that conversation? Can journalists help? If so, how? Does it have to be schools? How do we do this? And it's a big, it's a big question. I think as journalists within stories themselves, being very transparent about the reporting process the kind of like, quote unquote, show your work approach um, so that 
readers, as they're reading your story, understand what you did to find this information, just to be very transparent. And I found that readers appreciate that. And that's maybe something on an individual level or an institutional level. Um, journalists can think about applying more to their work. Is there anything you do want to say about what we've covered that I didn't ask you that you think it's important for people to know? The people who are making the decisions that most directly impact your life local governing bodies, city councils, et cetera, police departments. Um, if there aren't local reporters paying attention to them, making the calls, sitting in the meetings, um, what's going to happen? Um, and that should give pause at the very least to people. There was one story I didn't mention before, um, but the Larry Nasser case. The Indianapolis Star devoted so many resources to uncovering that whole big scandal. And at a congressional hearing, Simone Biles said that she didn't understand how widespread the abuse was until she read their coverage. And so you just wonder what other things are happening, not just on, you know, our local city councils and all these, but any sort of institution that holds power. And the reason the Indy Star did that reporting was because USA Gymnastics is based in their community. Um, and so we have these organizations and these entities that do have immense power nationally, globally, but who's going to look into them? There are local journalists who, who could look into them if they were there. Thank you to my guest, Elahe Izadi, media reporter for The Washington Post. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.